Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, chairman of the American Theatre Wing, with our board president, Doug Leeds. Welcome to today's program, where we will be talking about the musical Grey Gardens. We'll be back later on to tell you more about the work of the American Theatre Wing. But right now, please join us for another edition of Working in the Theatre. I'm Sue Frost for the American Theatre Wing. Welcome to Working in the Theatre. Today, we will be exploring the musical Grey Gardens with lyricist Michael Corey, book writer Doug Wright, and composer Scott Frankel. Joining us later on our program will be director Michael Greif, with cast members Aaron Davey, Christine Ebersole, and Mary Louise Wilson. Based on a 1976 cult classic documentary film, Grey Gardens explores the eccentric lives of two women living on Long Island, who happen to be related to what some may call American royalty. Before we begin, let's get a little more background on this piece from Miss Edie Beale, played by Christine Ebersole. The Hamptons B, July 1972. The elderly bedridden aunt of former First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy, Mrs. Edith Bouvier Beale, my very own mother, can you imagine? And her adult daughter, Miss Edie Beale, a former debutante once known as Body Beautiful Beale. They called me Body Beautiful Beale, it's true. That was my, what do you call it, my uh, sobriquet. are living on Long Island in a garbage-ridden, filthy, 28-room house with 52 cats, fleas, cobwebs, and virtually no plumbing. After vociferous complaints from neighbors, the Board of Health took legal action against the reclusive pair. Why, it's the most disgusting, atrocious thing ever to happen in America. <laughs> Scott, when did you first get the idea to musicalize Great Gardens? You know, I had seen the documentary uh, a handful of times in the 90s, and I uh, was always, always fascinated by it, but it never, ever dawned on me that it could be the source material for a musical. And then one day uh, in 2000, I was walking down the street, and I thought they both, both of the protagonists in the film love American popular music. The mother was a, a soprano, a, a chanteuse in her day, and the, the daughter fancied herself a great dancer, and I thought... Maybe there's a built-in performing arts component in it, the fact that they were both exhibitionists and both loved to perform so much and were so kind of stage-struck that they both are awed, seemingly, by show business in the film. Uh, and I, I called and inquired after the, the rights, and they were just about to give them to somebody else, a French opera composer who wanted to make it a through-sung opera. Uh, 
they were surprised at my interest because I guess the piece, the, the documentary came out in 1975, there had elicited no interests for adaptation for 25 years, and then here in the space of a week there were two of them. Uh, but I, I prevailed, and my, my pitch that wrested it away from the opera composer was that the sense of, of American music and American musical theater was more the ethos of those ladies, that they themselves would have preferred something that had more of a popular, popular music quality to it. And that worked. That's it great. Seemed, it seemed to work. That's great. So, so what did you do next? Did you pick up the phone and call Doug? First I called Michael. Michael Mike? and I had written two other musicals together, and uh, I showed him the documentary, and I said, am I crazy? And he said, no. And uh, then we uh, set, in, uh, set out to rope in Doug, and that proved much, much more difficult, and in fact took about a, took about a year and a half, well, maybe even longer. I, I finally secured the rights in 2002, after a lot of... Uh, so that's already two years. Yes, a lot of uh, legal fees and, and nail-biting on my part. Uh, you know, that you have to, when you option source material, they like to work out, you know, who will be getting house seats at the Malaysia production <laughs> in 2025. <laughs> All of those things have to be worked out in advance. And it was Before just... Before you a, write a note of music. It was fascinating yeah. to me, but also kind of horrifying as mm -hmm. I was... My, my, my finances were getting depleted. And then once that was secured, I approached Doug. I went to college with Doug at Yale. And uh, I thought that uh, I thought he would have the perfect sensibility for it, and I had hoped that he was a fan of the film. And it turns out he was a fan of the film. And because he was a fan <laughs> of the film, he basically said no. <laughs> it's true. And in fact, the, the guilty truth is Scott wasn't the first person to approach me about this material. Over the years, oh. a number of very compelling actresses had slipped me the DVD and said, I'd love to play this part. Do you think this would work on stage? Uh, never even positing a musical. But uh, because I was such an avid fan of the movie, I worried that to adapt it in any sense would be to do it a disservice. And I even worried that the fundamental uh, conceit of the stage was wrong for the material. Because when I watched the film, I loved its verisimilitude. I loved that it was real. These women were speaking in real time. They were improvising for the camera. They actually lived. And those moments of their day-to-day -day rituals were trapped forever in celluloid. And, and there was an immediacy about that. And its reality factor uh, uh, almost uh, belied their kind of exoticism. And I thought, put these eccentrics on stage in funny costumes with their whacked out voices and they lose all authenticity. You need to know that they're real in order for them to have impact. And my second great reservation was the fact that even though the film is scrupulously edited in a thematic way, it defies any attempt at narrative. There's no storytelling there. It's, it's a psychological portrait of a relationship, and as such, doesn't have the rudimentary story points on which you can build a musical. So uh, I would meet with Scott and Michael uh, about once a month for a year's time and uh, use all my energy to talk them out of the project. It was very cordial. They would come to my apartment, we would put the DVD in, we would have some coffee, we would walk and say, that's a fantastic moment, that could be a song. And then after an hour or so, Doug would, Doug would kind of say, thank you so much, and, and, and we'll do this again sometime. But he kept coming. <laughs> he kept That's coming. a good coming. sign. I kept coming. I, I knew he was very good coffee. Uh, <laughs> I knew he was intrigued, and even though, uh, even though I knew it was good, it was, I don't think a documentary has ever been adapted to the stage before, and I knew it pre would present a whole different set of problems than adapting a book or a play or a movie, uh, a fictional movie. Um, 
but I, I, I knew there was something there. I just had a feeling, and I just knew that Doug was the person to crack it. So we, 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 we persevered. I felt that it sang. Um, I had no idea how it could be structured. I had worked with um, real-life figures before in opera, never in musical. Um, but I did feel it sang, and the whole statement it was making about American musical theater in a ramshackle house at that time reflected my feelings about the American musical. So I liked the edginess of the whole thing, and I also just felt that the women did have a story, but as Doug says, it was not in evidence what that was. So when did you crack it? I'm sort of looking at the trajectory of time. It's well, I, w I wish I could report that as the book writer I'd been there when it was cracked, but I was <laughs> in fact absent, no. and that happened between Scott and Michael. It did, but there was all, there was all those coffee clutches before <laughs> where we dismissed various ways that it wouldn't work, uh -huh. which but, uh, led to this. But once Michael and I kind of made it our mission to get inside Doug's head about what his specific objections were and started to start thinking in terms of a solution, and that's when we came up uh, one day with this notion of uh, creating a first act that took place during the heyday of the house in the early 40s. And we thought that, uh, that it would give an opportunity for Doug to, uh, both with found text and, uh, and of his own creation, to, to fashion a, a first act that would be a backstory to the women that we see in the film and that would be a stage equivalent to their beautiful portraits and photographs in the film. And that's when we came up with this notion of a first act set in 1941, uh, where we could start to take a look at what the, what the society was like, what East Hampton was like, both women full of promise and, and youth and beauty, uh, and also start to see the uh, seeds of the mother-daughter relationship that would uh, explode and, and calcify all the more in, in Act Two. And we thought, given all the associations one brings to Grey Gardens of the dilapidated house and fallen American aristocracy and, you know, rats in the cellar and cats in the eaves, and uh, what could be more deliciously subversive than to open the evening in a beautiful, well-appointed, immaculate home? I mean, I did, I was really interested in confounding audience expectations. Maybe, maybe we were even a little too in love with it at that point, but uh, I was coming from a place of knowing the documentary so well, and so many of my friends knew it so well, that I thought people coming into the theater would, would be expecting curtain up, and you see, you know, uh, little Edie in her 50s, and, and big Edie in her 70s, and I thought, as Doug was saying, that it would be a, 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 re a real subversive gesture that they open on a, a high society Cole Porter type first act. Great gardens will be decked out in its pride. Right as a liberty die. Edie will be here with Joe in time. Like a Norman Rockwell family, our photo in the Hamptons be. The event of 1941. I've overspent a bit. The man who's gonna pay for it is He's arriving on the fire. The first act really helps anchor and tell the story and give a context for what they're about to see in the second act. They become invested in the characters, they understand the milieu, and they start to see elements of the pathology that will kind of. Uh, take you into the second act. Correct. But, but one of the things that I read somewhere was that you don't really know what led these two women to this. I mean, you're, you're, you're 
because of, of, of their confusion and what they tell you. And I just wondered, Doug, was that, was that you um, sort of pulling things out of the documentary and making? Largely, and also that combined with historical research. We know that the lady was engaged to Joe Kennedy for a brief time, and the engagement ended. We know that he subsequently died in World War II. We know that Phelan Beale, a Big Edie's husband, left her and obtained a Mexican divorce. We know that she was cut off from family funds by her grandfather, the major. Now, this didn't all happen on one fateful afternoon, but this being drama, <laughs> we compressed those events. And certainly part of the challenge for us was to uh, suggest, plant all the seeds of dysfunction and pathology and heartbreak in Act One without ever demystifying the women at the same time. So we, it's like we wanted to plant seeds in Act One, and then we wanted the Act Two curtain to open on a fully grown forest of trees uh, where all of these little dysfunctions had blossomed into really catastrophic problems for these ladies. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we wanted to posit reasons for their spiral into decay and potentially madness and their own idiosyncratic natures, but we didn't want to uh, create simple causal relationships. Daddy left us, they went crazy. That felt like a, a losing proposition. So we wanted to uh, retain the complexity of the film. Hopefully it creates a more complicated, I mean, I think the show is very adult in the, in the sense that it doesn't definitively say, as Doug said, lay a causal path. You, you have to and people see people see different parts of their own lives and people see a, a complicated trajectory well, and it's easy i think to be pejorative about the women and say they're camp or they're gargoyles or they're over the top but i think that's dishonest because i think when we really examine them we see that eccentrics at their purest are really just our own habits distilled and writ large mm -hmm. and uh, i know i i certainly uh, don't have Edie's in my family, but I had a beloved aunt who hoarded newspapers, and she'd never thrown newspapers away. And they just stacked up in her house till you could barely move around the furniture. And I'd say, why are you doing this? And she said, well, I'll get around to reading them one day. And I realized that it was actually quite beautiful and tragic in a way. She was hoarding time, because there would always be tomorrow mm -hmm. where she could catch up on yesterday. Hmm. And it was a, a fear of time and its passage that made her do it. And I think if you view these ladies with a little compassion, it's impossible not to see yourself in them. I think, though, though, if it were just any old mother and daughter, your neighbors, maybe there wouldn't be the same fascination, but because they were members of the aristocracy, because they had a fabled life in East Hampton, and because they were related to Jackie Kennedy Onassis, we're interested, intrigued in them, and then we see when the, aristoc or the, when the aristocratic trappings fall away and when bad times hit, what are they talking about? What's for dinner? What kind of soup do you want? Did you feed the cats? And we realize we're the same. I, mean, I do think particularly when the film came out in the 70s, there was definitely an aspect of schadenfreude uh, in terms of people's voyeuristic uh, interest in the film. Here was Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, the most beautiful, wealthy, famous woman in the world, and she had she had an Aunt Tilly and a, and a cousin yeah. Maude, <laughs> just, just like the rest of us do, only, only more so. And, and, and the disparity between uh, her wealth and beauty and power and their uh, impoverishment and, and, and living in, in squalor was, was, I think, very titillating mm -hmm. uh, for people. The film is complicated for people to watch. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think it's, a, it's an amazing, it goes from 
uh, hilarity to, to heartbreak in a second. The women are fascinating and complex, but there's also, it's also hard to watch. Some, the filth really is filthy, and the flesh really is sagging, and it is a very vulnerable and intimate portrait. And I think people had and continue to have a hard time looking at those, those kind of major life elements in, in looking them square in the eye like that. Well, because there's just this fine line that I think that we all know we walk, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's interesting, though, that the musical is making people who weren't familiar with the documentary run out and rent it, and vice versa. I would well, love to talk about that, that a little bit. The difference in your audiences, those mm-hmm. that, that know it and come to it, and those that, that have no idea. So I would love to hear you talk about I would say our that. audiences have been a gift and at the same time a really vexing problem because you have uh, the, the, the fans of the film who bring so much zeal to the show and are so responsive and applaud little Edie endlessly and cheer at every film reference, and they're gorgeous audiences. And then you have of musical theater fans who caught the show uh, at Playwrights Horizons and have listened to uh, the CD a number of times and have their own history with it and come to the theater to express that. For the ninth time. Yeah. And then you have the theater goer who's bought a ticket to what they understand is a wonderful pair of performances by Christine Eversole and Mary Louise Wilson and they're ready for an evening of storytelling. I mean putting together musicals is the ultimate jigsaw puzzle. You take components and you, you, or you, you, move, you move pieces incrementally and they have a huge impact on the rest of the piece and I do think that uh, you know there are three new songs in the first act, there are two cut songs, there are, there's new cast members, there are, there's new text and I think that all of that was done uh, in a desire to uh, to strengthen the storytelling, to get everybody on board, uh, so th- so they could have a complete and total experience, regardless of their so- relationship with the source material. And and I think we're definitely moving we're moving in that direction, and it's mm-hmm. been amazing to have an opportunity to do so. Yeah. Did you put most of your energy into uh, uh, changing the first act, or was it really just sort of looking over the whole piece? I mean, I know you talked about a new beginning and a new ending, but... but I think we knew that if we uh, fixed the first act, then the second act would automatically have greater resonance and power. Mm-hmm. And so it was really a case, uh, I think we got very seduced by the fun 1940s Philip Berry style mm-hmm. uh, uh, period uh, aesthetic in Act One, somewhat uh, to the detriment of our good old-fashioned Aristotelian storytelling. So we've tried to uh, focus the act more so we know that it's little Edie's special day, the day of her engagement, and there's always the danger in the air that mother might ruin it. So we have more narrative tension, we have a richer, more evolved relationship between mother and daughter, and I think now, instead of being caught up in a kind of faux-forties musical, uh, the audience is really watching relationship dynamics unspool. So that when the second act comes, you've seen its precursor, and the two acts, as a result, feel much more unified. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the hope. Can we talk a little bit? And, and, and you're sitting at a piano, <laughs> so I'm hoping we might be able to take advantage of sure. that. Sure. Can we talk a little bit about maybe you've, the the two different um, approaches to the, to the two different acts musically? Right. I mean, the very first song that Michael and I wrote uh, for the show is called Two Peas in a Pod." It's sung mm-hmm. uh, between the mother and daughter in the first act, and uh, you know, in, in the movie, Big, Big Edith listens in, in, her, in her trash-covered bed to a recording of, of T for Two. And we wanted to kind of affectionately reference uh, T for Two, and Michael came up with the hook, Two Peas in a Pod. Uh, 
which and then I tried to write a song that would be in the style of uh, uh, we're a bowl of peaches and cream, the Dodgers and Brooklyn, a permanent team. Uh, you know, something along those lines that that ends up a two peas in a pod. That they would it would work as for people who knew the documentary, but it would also work for people who didn't. You know, mm -hmm. the second act has a. a a much more, uh, almost a free associative quality as the ladies do themselves. You know, Big Edith sings a number in the second act to to uh, Jerry, who's a, uh, a character that appears, who's a handyman slacker, and uh, she sings a song improbably titled, uh, uh, Jerry likes the way I do my corn. Isn't he a treasure? I mean, that you would actually... It's a strange musical that can have a song called Jerry Likes My Corn. Oh, it's not a, a traditional moment that you'd musicalize. Correct, and yet, and, yet corn, the, and, yet, and yet I think the audience, because of where we rooted them at the beginning and what they see is happening visually and in terms of the casting, in, in the double casting in the second act, Christine, who played the mother in, mm -hmm. in 1941, now plays the daughter in the 70s, and Mary Louise Wilson comes out and plays the role of the mother. And I think that... You can see how much the house has changed, how much their lives have changed, their behavior has become much more extreme, and I think the music also goes to wilder places and more more unusual places. And more unusual choices about what you decided to musicalize. It was actually that song, yeah. that, uh, the thought of that song, when Scott first showed me the documentary, that made me think this could be a musical. Because the corn, the the corn number? When she says in the documentary, uh, what is the exact line that she uses? Um, he always compliments me on the, the way, way I, I do my corn. corn. And apart from all the songs they were singing, T for Two, You in the Night, and the music, I said, that is the key to her personality. She once had everything, now she has nothing except this corn pot. And yet she sees herself as a mother, while her daughter is sitting next to her suffering. There's, a, there's song in there, there's mm -hmm. music in there, and mm -hmm. that's, to, to me, let's pursue this. I mean, what's wonderful about Michael's lyrics, and I, and I hope about the, the song moments that we've chosen is, I mean, I, I don't like songs that are bald explications of, of ideas and text, as in, I love you now, yes I do. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd rather have a number called Jerry Likes My Corn that is ostensibly about something else but that is, that is you know, rife with implications and, and subtext about, mm -hmm. about other things. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me that's so much more interesting and I think the audience too, they see Mary Louise with a, you know, in, in, in her trash-strewn bed with a, with a hot pot with corn and a fork and that, when she, and she sings it with such love to this, to this kid, kid. Uh, that, that tells a much more interesting, it's a more interesting way to tell the story rather than saying, I love you, you're my surrogate son. Though right. there's, right. there's right. always the right. suspicion that our, what, 15 years of working together might have borne fruit sooner. Had we written, I love you now. <laughs> you're my surrogate <laughs> right. son. Well, but you know, we everything finds its way, <laughs> right. isn't it? Now, are there, um, over the course of developing the piece, did you write a lot of material, a lot of music that went away? I mean, did, uh, or, or did a lot of this We have stay? a small trunk of deleted songs. You have a small songs. trunk? Yes, Any I mean, favorites that we're gonna we're gonna hear later? You're never gonna hear the Gypsy Pasta Doble <laughs> <laughs> or or Fairy in the Garden. No, that's no, gone. no. These no, are uh, gone. there. There is a pretty ballad uh, for the for the lovers in in Act One called Sure of You. Uh,
think that uh, we learned that, that a lyrical uh, ballad between our two young lovers was, uh, although lovely, uh, in fact, uh, the audience was already ahead of us and they, already, we already, they were already knew that they were young and great looking and were going to have a beautiful lyrical time together. So I hope that that, that song may find a, another life uh, somewhere. You know, it should. It's gorgeous. It was the wrong energy, though, for a Joe Kennedy. Mm -hmm. He was a disciple of his father. He mm -hmm. was very politically ambitious. And to have him singing a juvenile lead song was untrue to his characterization. Well, and you, you, you strengthened his character in, in, and, right. and made it more, more clear to the audience exactly where, you know, you know that, why he made uh, the decision he made. I worked... Uh, early on as a music director and pianist on some Stephen Sondheim musicals and I learned many many things perhaps first and foremost is that uh, you can win the battle and lose the war in terms of hanging on to material mm -hmm. and I, he has an extraordinary uh, eye and an incredible acumen about what needs to go and what needs to change and I really tried to and I think we all have both in terms of song and in text been willing to let go, even if they're favorite moments of ours. And I think our director, Michael Greif, has been very helpful to us in steering us towards story, story, story. Tell the story. Mm -hmm. Don't get trapped in artificial stylistic devices. Mm -hmm. You know, at this point, Christine and Mary Louise also, who joined us in, uh, from the very first workshop, have, uh, you know, they have very specific ideas now, too, about having inhabited these women and their, their uh, insights from playing them night after night and their take on them is, is incredibly useful to us. So, we, so we, we, we're listening to those, to sure. those voices as well, and that's proved, you know, very beneficial. And we have al almost this family, our director, our designers, and our cast, have been together almost from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, but it is somewhat daunting to be doing this in front of the entire public uh, in New York and people that we grew up with and work with. I'm glad that audiences are liking it because if they weren't, uh, I think it would be very difficult. Sure. I mean, I, I saw it at a Wednesday matinee, so I saw that third group, that, that theater-going group mm -hmm. that had no idea about the documentary and, and really, I think, were drawn into the initial story, and you're right, the whole interest in the aristocracy and the, uh, the Bouvier clan, and, and you've cleverly got those two little girls on stage to remind us of, of really where we are and who we're with, mm -hmm. and, and, then, and then sort of a seamless transition to, to Act Two. And, and I will say, I was at the closing performance at Playwrights Horizons, where when Christine comes out at the top of Act Two, it, it's it, stop Pandemonium, the show, yes. stop the show. <laughs> and, and at a normal matinee audience, who people who've never seen the documentary, they just think, well, she's dressed oddly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really kind of. I spoke amazing to her to once watch. though about you know because I just couldn't imagine what it was like for a performer to have such a disparity of audience response and whether that was unnerving in any way, and she. She's actually made her, made a very healthy piece with it. She's she 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 can take the temperature of the room almost instantly, and then kind of calibrate her performance accordingly. Every, every there, she appreciates that everyone is still along on the ride. They may be on a slightly different she route. Figures out what what part of the ride they're on, Correct. and then responds accordingly. Yeah, that's. I great. think there are just certain figures in our culture who just rise to the fore at certain times. Mm -hmm. Little Edie, as Scott has said, has been in the public knowledge since the documentary was made, but 20 years went by and now she's been rediscovered. 
Um, and she seems to speak very strongly to this age. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us were aware quite how strongly she would speak. Uh, but together with this performance that Christine has um, originated and uh, the character herself, you don't really have to know the story beforehand to, for this character to speak to you. I mean, I think that her life, and it's so beautiful and kind of heartbreaking to me, is that she had so many dreams and so many desires and was unable to realize mm -hmm. so many of them. And that, that notion of unfulfilled uh, expectation and hope is, is, is sad and, and beautiful to me and very bittersweet. But, but in a way, you've, you've brought it back to her, do you well, know, by putting this Well, I love to think that we've made some sort of posthumous restitution. <laughs> Apparently, when the, when the film was first edited, uh, Albert Maisels and David took a, a rough draft of it and actually took a Super 8 movie projector into Grey Gardens in the 70s and screened it for the ladies. Mm -hmm. And uh, Big Edie said it's a masterpiece. <laughs> and, and Little Edie said, uh, well, I, I like it, but um, I really wish there had been more singing and dancing. Well, and here we are. So with any luck, you well, know, done well. You've there's done one well other fire. unpublished letter. Uh, Scott mentioned the one she mentioned to the Times. And there's one she wrote to Albert Maisels when Scott had approached him about us writing a musical. And he wrote to her for her permission. Do you remember the contents of that? She, she, uh, she said she loved the idea of turning Grey Gardens into a, a musical. She said, my entire life was music and song. With all that I didn't have, my life was still joyous. Well, that's perfect, and it's a perfect lead-in to the fact that we're going to take a break. Fantastic. We are so grateful to have you here. I'd like to thank Scott and Michael and Doug for joining us today. When we come back, we'll be joined by some of the cast members from Grey Gardens. But first, a few words about the work of the American Theatre Wing. The American Theatre Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. We stand for excellence, and we support education in the theater. Best known for creating the Tony Award, our work reaches beyond Broadway and New York. These seminar programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are an unequaled forum for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth interviews are heard on XM Satellite Radio. Our grant and scholarship programs support New York theater companies and theater students. And since we began, we have given away more than two and a half million dollars. Our theater intern group helps young people who are just starting in their careers build a professional network. And Springboard NYC is a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country. All of the American Theatre Wing's educational and media programs are available for free, on demand, from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Now, let's return to the seminar. We're back with Michael Greif and the women of Grey Gardens, Christine Ebersole, Mary Louise Wilson, and Aaron Davey. Michael, I'd like to start with you. When did you first come on board with Great Garden? Um, in the fall of 2002, uh, Scott Frankel, I believe, asked me to take a look at a script that he and Michael Corey and Doug Wright were just putting together for the Sundance Music Theater Lab, which takes place at uh, White Oak, Florida, a wonderful place. Um, and what they gave me was uh, a complete first act, 
And about half of the material that we now have in the first act was in, was in that act that I read. And uh, an outline for what songs might be a part of the second act. And I read uh, a first act that took place in the 40s and centered around Little Edie's engagement party and her mother's desire to sing at it. I, I was struck immediately by what a great musical motor it had. Mm -hmm. How fantastic that these women both loved singing and that could be the real reason for this musical. I love that the musical was a combination of performed songs and then book songs. And of course I was very excited to see what they would come up with for the second act, which they always intended to set in the 70s and to follow more closely the documentary. So I thought it was great material and I was very excited to get it. So we have three Beale women and we have, maybe you can tell us a little bit about who plays which Beal when. How's that? <laughs> well, I play Big Edie in Act One, which takes place in 1941. And I play Little Edie in Act Two, which takes place in 1973. So in Act One, I'm the mother, and Erin is my daughter. In Act Two, I'm the daughter, and Mary Louise is my mother. Makes sense. Do you watch each other? I mean, in terms of as, as actresses, is your becoming the mother? It's frequently asked, and I really never really have an answer for okay. it. It's <laughs> adequate. Because for, for me, act one really comes out of my imagination mm -hmm. and comes out of just sort of referencing, you know, high society back in the 40s. And act two mm -hmm. is really more informed by the documentary. So. I, I, you know, people ask me, well, did you look at Big Edie in the documentary to inform how you were in Act One? Well, maybe, sort of. I don't know. It just, a lot of it is intuitive. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's just sort of, it's hard to explain, really. It's just sort of, you just embody it and you go inside of it and you embrace it and, and then you become it. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I certainly was over, you know, that was, it was the documentary that informed me. It didn't occur to me to think about myself as a young woman, sure. except as she does, you know, because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah. she's still thinking about herself as a young woman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely watch Christine and also the documentary, because mm -hmm. I think it's very important that the first act, Dee Dee, is, you know, believable as, hopefully believable as the, what she turns into in the what second she act. Becomes what she in becomes the second act. Right. So, Yes, I watch as much as I can. And though, unfortunately, now the way our stage is set up, I don't, I don't get to see you as much as I like. I only get to see you maybe in one scene in the well, second Well, it was act. a wonderful part of rehearsal, being yeah. able to watch one another. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there were also certain days where Erin would actually be Little Edie in Act Two. <laughs> and that was sort of a wonderful little exercise and that a was wonderful interesting. convenience. Terrifying. But yeah. <laughs> it seemed very fruitful. Well, I want to say just as someone who has the privilege of watching these extraordinary performances over time, that uh, when what you speak of as intuition, uh, th there has been a beautiful process over time of, of likening and becoming and relating in ways that are very subtle and, as you say, intuitive. And I know the writers spent a lot of energy trying to plant uh, language, vocabulary for, for Big Edie in the 40s, which then we hear in the 70s. And because Christine is so extraordinarily sensitive to text, gestures and actions and a lot of other things follow. So I found it wonderful to see the ways in which Edie in the 40s become, Big Edie in the 40s become Big Edie in the, in the 70s, as well as, of course, something we worked on very uh, uh, 
consciously, which was helping Aaron in the 40s prepare for who Little Edie would be in the 70s. Okay. Okay. And the two of you have had quite a bit of time to develop these characters because you came came to White Oak and helped mm -hmm. them develop the show. That's kind of a unique situation. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that yeah. a little bit? Oh, it's the best. You know, yeah, that's what theater should be, is mm -hmm. you should have a lot of time to do, sink into a character, you know. And it was very collaborative. I mean, yeah. the, ways, the, the ways in which <laughs> Christina and Mary Louise inspired the writers, too, is I extraordinary. When we first got to Sundance, as Mary Louise alluded to earlier, when we were talking off camera, uh, there was no Act Two actually written. Mm -hmm. um, we went down with a collection, a, a couple of songs. Yes, corn. Mm -hmm. and, and cake. cake. Corn, corn and cake. cake so you took songs. some food with you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> some with the songs that were actually written. Mm -hmm. And then I, I, I think Mary Louise inspired uh, the writers, really, I in creating the rest of the second act. And so much of Christine's spectacular material in the second act, I was completely inspired by Christine's instincts and her presence. and. Well, uh, um, actually, Around the World and Another Winter in a Summer Town were written for me by Scott and um, Michael Corey. And I remember there was one performance where I was reciting the lyrics for Another Winter in a Summer Town because the music hadn't been written yet. And, and quite a performance it was, too, <laughs> I'd like well, I to kept, say. I was, it was so amazing because it, was, it evoked such emotion. And just reading the lyrics, I thought, oh, I don't know, should we put music to it? <laughs> yeah, there, there, it was there was so that tiny little fear so that, uh-oh, we're going to cross the line. But then when the music came, when the music came, came yeah. Yeah. this is the right music. Yeah. One little leaf adrift in the breeze refuses to fall. Blown by the wind, it clings to the trees, unwilling to wither and die. There's nothing like being able to see, you know, a great artist meet up with great material, and that's what Sundance was day after day, just watching these women grapple with this material and then watching it change and then having the writers bring new terrific material in for them to test out was was mm -hmm. a very spectacular process. Mm -hmm. So you were down there for a couple of weeks? Two weeks. Two weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we were already, I was already completely obsessed with the movie, independently <laughs> of it. I mean, before I'd ever been asked Well, before it. you'd even been asked, yeah, right? Yeah, before I'd ever been yeah. asked, yeah, yeah. It was almost like the universe was preparing me for this uh, about a year before that, actually. This, you know, when we lunch were, and dinner. When we, were, when we were first meeting and uh, dreaming up a company, we, we mentioned Christine and Mary Louise, and we actually were told, oh, I don't think Christine's going to be available for this. Yeah, because I just turned down another play at Sunday. I, was, I said, no, it's Christmas time. I've got to be with the kids, you know? Yeah. And then when they said, Great Gardens, I said, screw the kids, I'm down there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was, it was uh, something I couldn't, I couldn't turn down. So you knew, the doc you knew the documentary before. Did you? Had you seen it before? Yes, I had. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Do you have the same response uh, to totally it? Totally different. <laughs> I, I thought, a musical? It was a horrifying uh, movie. It terrified me. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, Leopold Loeb was a musical at that time. And I thought, this is a bad road to go down. But 
you know, it was the winter. It was getting cold, and it was Florida, and I thought, why not? Why you know? <laughs> what did I know? I have such a different view of the movie. Totally different now. You know, yeah. So. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and I can imagine you also get different audience responses depending on how many people in the audience have actually seen the movie and have not. Um, too. It doesn't not seem. To it doesn't seem to matter. They're all really. screaming and yelling at the end. Yeah. The up, end really. result is always the same. Same. But in terms of going, because I, I saw I saw it at Playwrights, I saw the, saw the final performance at Playwrights, and then I saw a, a preview here in New York, and I saw it with a Wednesday matinee. Oh. And I would venture to guess that very few of those people had actually seen the documentary. Right. Uh, and they were absolutely riveted, and it was, mm -hmm. a, it was a terrific response. But it was a very different response yeah. than, than the earlier When they're singing along. When they're singing yeah. along, and, and when you come out at the top of the second act yeah. in, in mm -hmm. your revolutionary costume, and... And there's such recognition. Yeah. So I just wonder, as performers, mm -hmm. how do you re how do you respond to that on a performance by performance basis? Well, I think for the most part, there is a, that kind of response. Mm -hmm. You know, well, I always say, to there's nothing like a matinee to knock you off your high horse. Yeah. You know? <laughs> 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 oh, they love me. It's like being a big mat. like, who the hell is that? You know? The next day. So it's always a humbling experience. But. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But at the end, the result is the same. They're, mm -hmm. all, they're leaping to Completely their feet and screaming at the end. Yeah. So. It's very rewarding to feel like people are meeting these women in the same way that you'd meet them if you'd watch the documentary for the first time, mm -hmm. in, in all of their glory mm -hmm. and all of their contradictions. And uh, you really feel that, that, mm -hmm. that women, that Wednesday matinee audience, are really meeting a couple of remarkable women for mm -hmm. the first time. And, and women really who are reminiscent. You know, mother-daughter relationship, mm -hmm. I think it has a tremendous uh, power for people, good or bad. Yeah. But not just mother-daughter relationship, I would say, but also the whole idea of, you know, maybe regrets or mm -hmm. what was lost, yes. what could have been. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 That gets, that gets me every time. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Now, you came to it later. You came to the Broadway production. Yeah. Had you seen the documentary? And what was your, what was your uh, history with with the material? Um, I, <laughs> I rented the movie the night before my audition because uh -huh. I hadn't seen it. Uh -huh. um, but I certainly thought it was interesting. <laughs> and, um, but not as crazy as, I mean, my boyfriend was sat there. He said, oh, you're going to love this. He said, you know, it's, they're crazy. And I sat down and I just, I thought, they're not that crazy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's something going on. There's something going on behind that that's logical and makes mm -hmm. sense. And, mm -hmm. I felt like I kind of got it, so. And I think also the whole idea that these women were not a really allowed to to express themselves right. as mm -hmm. artists mm -hmm. or or as someone different, someone out of the norm. It's a perfect topic for for a musical, perfect because they want they want to perform. I mean, I mm -hmm. think music is a huge thing in, in Big Edie. Terribly important, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. It's Nothing everything. Made her happier. Yeah, That's right. in her whole life. She said it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nothing made her happy. Right. So they're happy, happy now. I'm sure. Yeah, because they're not being pushed. I mean, that social world was so uh, forbidding. You know, you couldn't, you, you couldn't ever go um, out in public and perform for money. You just couldn't do it. It's w worse than being than prostitution. Remember mm -hmm. that very interesting, just, just recently mm -hmm. when Jane Wyatt died, and it said in her obituary that she came from high society, and when she became an actor, 
her name was taken off the social register. <laughs> Blotted. Taken Blotted. off, taken so, off yeah, the social yeah. register. Yeah. Very telling, yeah. you know, what that time was. That's the was. time, yeah. You mm -hmm. just didn't do it. As actresses, how do you, how do you approach how do you approach coming into these parts? Do you do you because especially since the two of you worked so closely together as the sh as the show was developing, do you have similar processes or was it just was it? Um, What's your process? Quick, quick, yeah. quick, quick. For me, it's it's breathing. It's all about yeah. breath. Yeah, I'm just very technical. You mm -hmm. know, I never seem to have enough, <laughs> and uh, I have to remember to vocalize not so much for the for the. Voice is just getting, make sure my diaphragm is working. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. it takes a lot of breath. But in terms of the, the 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 relationship between the two of you, you clicked right away. I don't remember a time when we didn't mm -hmm. really. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. It just comes with trust and admiration. Yeah. I, I think yeah. she's fabulous. Yeah. Me too. Mutual admiration. Mutual admiration society. So no tension, no backstab. Oh, no backstabbing. No backstabbing. Oh, well, she's very difficult. Grandma's on stage. She got a chandelier in her dressing room. She had to get one. And and coming into this, coming into this relationship, how how was it for you? I can have felt more welcomed. By everybody, uh -huh. everybody, I felt overwelcomed. I, <laughs> I mean, everybody was like, <laughs> you know, I, I came in and everybody was just so happy to have me, and it was the nicest thing. But then I felt like I really had to deliver some goods. Yeah. So it worked. It okay. Worked. Yeah, you're delivering. All right, thank you. So it was, yeah, it was very smooth. We're an act like Crosby and Hope. A rosy complexion and ivory soap. Pip and Miss Estella had a Anuela. Two peas in a pod. I was curious to read something about the impact that Little Edie had on the fashion world. Mm -hmm. Now, what's it like inhabiting those clothes? Was it? Did you help? Did you? Well, uh, William Ivy Long, who's so brilliant, and uh, we had these long sessions together and we just sort of go look at the storyboard and just go through what I actually had to do. So what was practical about making these costume changes when I wasn't off stage. So a lot of the costume changes had to take place on stage. Mm -hmm. You know, um, things about taking a sweater off and putting it on your head and then putting it around your waist and then the sweater used to be with a skirt, then you take the skirt off backstage and take the shoes off, and then you put you have a pair of shoes on stage, you put them on, then you take the skirt that's around your waist, and then it ends up on your head. So it's that kind of a thing. So we just kind of went through it and figured out how we could put those puzzle pieces together. It looks very organic because it mm -hmm. just seems like you're up there and you're just, every day you're figuring out a different way to put it together. Mm -hmm. So it really mm -hmm. is, it's really an amazing process. Yeah, and that's kind of what she did, I guess. I'm I mean, sure. That I'm maybe. sure that's how it all came about. Yeah. 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 I was very tickled to learn when I watched, uh, there was an additional 90 minutes of footage that was released uh, last summer. For the first time, the, mm -hmm. the Beals the of Grey Gardens. The Beals of Grey Gardens. Yeah. There was some intimation, which I had certainly not gotten before, that one of the reasons that Edie changed clothes a lot was to please 
Biggie D. To show her, give her mother fashion shows. Yeah, all the time. Amuse her and entertain her. Amuse her. She would change it like eight times a day. It was an act of generosity. So I thought that was a spectacular additional part of the relationship to mine. And she does. And mother loved it. She loved it, yeah. Do you think that with the repeat audience members. You have a lot of people, I think, who come back a lot to see the musical, who were probably initially fans of the documentary or have become fans of the musical. Are you are you starting to starting to develop a a club? I mean, are you starting to recognize people? I'm just curious about it. Seems like one fellow. Yeah, well, no, lots of people have seen it like 20 times, yeah. or, you know. But I think it's just because it's so multi-layered, you can't really get it in the first time. I don't know that it would, con- you know, constitute like a fan club, you know, where you're shouting out lines and things like that. It's just not that kind of a show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's it's kind of, I think, just from what I'm experiencing on stage is that I think it's a it's kind of a transformational kind of experience. It's really a spiritual mm. experience that people can go and actually feel something, mm-hmm. feel something emotionally, uh, you know, which is, it goes beyond entertainment uh, to an experience. And I, I think people sort of long for that. Yeah. Well, it's certainly, when you when you look at the, the, the kind of musical this is, and it's not what you would traditionally say would be a Broadway musical, um, and you've all been involved in developing new work as well as, as, as redoing classics, I mean, I would think that would be a very exciting feeling to know that great. you're part of something as, really as innovative is. and, really and, and as, as non-traditional as this right. show is. Well, it reminds you that Broadway can be the best of yeah. New York theater, right. and it's wonderful mm-hmm. when it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as you're watching your audiences, I was struck the time that I was there that they were they were really drawn to that to that first act and the whole idea of American royalty, and mm-hmm. the whole sort of proximity to to uh, the the Kennedy uh, mm-hmm. myth, perhaps. But I, I think Preview. Doug always recognized that the proximity to uh, the Kennedy myth would be a way in for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think recognize that even the Maisels made it the way into the documentary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, right off the bat, they say, mm-hmm. these are Jackie's relatives here. These people came very close to being the most celebrated and the most powerful women in, in the nation. Really, little Edie, as the story goes, was, in, was briefly engaged to Joe Kennedy, and he's the one that was being primed to be the president of the United States by mm-hmm. his father. Mm-hmm. And to think that, you know, because of the fates, it just went a completely different way. It's just, you know, I think that's endlessly fascinating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think that's true. You know, that we think that we control somehow our, our universe. Well, and also that whole idea of um, these are women who had it all, and that's then it right. fell apart, and, yeah. and, and, right. and no real resources to protect themselves from mm-hmm. whatever that mm-hmm. is. That's very part of all. I came down here to take care of my dying mother. I never asked you. I never begged. And then she pulled a fast one on me. She kept right on breathing. <laughs> <laughs> Right on walking around. I'm here. I'm too. I'm in the Did room. Did you hear that? I could have sworn I just heard her voice. <laughs> Nothing good ever happened to you in New York. Are you kidding? 
I was discovered by that producer fellow. People discover me every time I leave the house. I don't think anything of it. <laughs> Mr. Max Gordon, you've heard of him, haven't you? He discovered Judy Holiday, and he said I was much funnier. Well, you haven't been funny today, boy. <laughs> I think the women and the characters are so well-loved and, and recognized be, is because, in spite of their fall, they really are making the most of it. Mm -hmm. And they're content. And they find ways in which to make each other happy and mm -hmm. to make themselves happy and fulfilled. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I think people recognize that you define, you define yeah. your own mm -hmm. happiness. It's really part of the all this music and poetry, mm -hmm. and it, that's what mm -hmm. really matters mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. you know? My guess is that the Beale women would be very happy with this show. I think they are very happy. Yeah. <laughs> they're very yeah. much a you part of it. They yes, they're to, very much a part of it. Yeah. Little Edie did have the chance to respond to Albert uh, when Albert informed her that Scott was trying to make a musical of Grey Gardens, and she was very pleased and just asked that it be historically accurate mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and be uh, sufficiently affectionate toward her mother. Mm -hmm, I think my darling so. mother mm -hmm. was yeah. the last line. I'm, I'm not remembering it completely correctly, but it was generous and beautiful and really helped us all mm -hmm. feel like we were on the right road. I didn't you feel like we really got their blessing. Yes, yes, yeah. really? absolutely. And it's been it's felt like that mm -hmm. all the time mm -hmm. and because I think we're so we've been everybody involved has been they've put put their faithfulness and loyalty and servitude to the Beals, and I think that's why. Yeah, no you know, ego, because it's, yeah. Yeah. it's all that's about great. them. Well, it's great to hear you say that, because I know there were some questions about whether first the documentary was, was exploiting them in mm -hmm. some way. And, um, and it seems, just watching it, that, that they're happy to have, happy to have the company. Yeah. Little, way, Edie, little Edie they, also they, responded to that. She wrote a letter to the editor mm -hmm. um, in response to that, feeling that they uh, expressing in the New York Times particularly that they had exploited the Beals and she wrote a letter co contradicting that mm -hmm. but they wouldn't print it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whatever opportunity you had to interact with folks who actually knew the Edies, Albert Maisel was was around for some of the development of I the believe piece? that I believe that uh, when Scott first got the rights from Albert uh, they uh, entered upon some sort of agreement mm -hmm. where Albert would be informed of mm -hmm. what Scott's intentions were, mm -hmm. I think. He mm -hmm. would be able to speak to that much better. But I, I know that um, it was very important for Doug and Michael and Scott to have Albert's support mm -hmm. on the project, and mm -hmm. they wanted to do a musical that had all of the integrity that the documentary had. Mm -hmm. And I think they succeeded beautifully, and I think Albert feels that, and Albert's been around in a, in a very supportive way. Mm -hmm, in fact, yeah. he's making mm -hmm. a, a documentary about making the musical about his documentary. A documentary about making the musical. Oh, great. I feel like I struck the lottery. Yeah. I never thought I'd actually this get is your, to do This is your Broadway debut? It is. Broadway debut. It is, and yeah. it happened so fast, and I, I, I was just hoping to work. I'd never thought in a million so years good. that I would get to do something like this. Something good. Something really yeah. good. Yeah, meaty. Unbelievably yeah. interesting. I mean, she, you have to go from this, you know, love, you know, I'm, I'm in love and it's a beautiful day to complete hysteria and, and almost madness. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's but, but Doug so it's good. It's wonderful. It's this yeah. lovely yeah. ride. I mean, yeah. it's like, that's right. You know, there I go. He, the tracks are laid down very yeah. beautifully. Yeah. I, he's an extraordinary director as well. He really yeah. knows how to get from beat to beat to beat, beat to beat. beat. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. Great.
great. In, in fact, I watched the documentary now and I'm a little surprised mm -hmm. when, <laughs> because, you know, the wonderful uh, uh, telescoping or um, uh, reshaping that Doug has done, I, I forgot. the dramatization of yeah. it, really. Sure. Yeah. That was the f those, were the, those were the first actual steps he took at Sundance after a, a group of terrific songs were written. He found a way in which he could actually insert those songs into a real dramatic structure, very mm -hmm. unlike the film, and really give it a dramatic arc. Well, and he said, you know, the challenge is taking a documentary which is real, which is this, and, and making it theatrical. And, mm -hmm. and well, giving it this, the kind of theatrical energy that yeah. it needs mm -hmm. to that be on stage. That it needs to be there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's, it's terrific that that process was, was something that you, that you could all be part of right through the beginning. Mm -hmm. Very exciting, very unique. Well, yeah. spectacular and confident writers who had the confidence to include Well, they had the all. vision, had a vision, and, yeah. and, 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 and knew enough of what they were doing to be able to hear to from, from the likes of us. Mm -hmm. right. Well, it has been a pleasure chatting with you today. I really appreciate um, the opportunity to, to talk through the Women of Grey Gardens with all of you. <laughs> thank so you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank it's you. a lot of fun. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York with our partners, CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theatre Wing, thank you for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theatre.